0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we'll stay in the whole group tonight. Next week, we'll have small groups. we we'll are talking about energy next week or effort. But... Uh, Some of the things that I covered in the guided sit tonight and I'll be talking about, maybe you have some comments as I'm sharing tonight as well about this topic of investigation. Really one of the most important things to get a direct intuitive sense of what the Buddha means by investigation. And um, I mentioned last week you know, there's different ways to hold and understand this general teaching on the skillful factors, the seven factors of awakening. And one way that Saito Utageia that I mentioned last week holds it is, "Really all we're doing are the first three. As a person, as a practitioner, we have the intention to be mindful," that wonderful quote, "An intention so persevering, it's, it becomes a kind of love." Like the devotion to be present, to remember, oh, it's like this. And with some continuity, the mind realizes, I can learn something here. I can investigate, now that we've sort of opened the door with a continuity of mindfulness, something dawns on the mind, there are things to see, to learn, to understand unfolding here. Basically, like the initial wisdom is being able to discern the difference between a mind that's unfolding in an unskillful way, things are getting tighter, due due probably to the mind getting attached, taking something personally, and then that direct and immediate experience of things getting tighter, constricted in the body-mind, and observing at other times in this continuity of awareness, things opening up, lightening up, freeing up. Right? So that, that is the basic fruit. Now that's so energizing to the mind to begin to understand <clears throat> how it all works, how suffering comes to be excuse me, and how release from that same suffering, how that comes to be. And then everything, all the other factors really flow. This is just one way to think about it or hold it or to see it. So with that persevering energy, because the mind sees how relevant it is to see what is skillful and what is unskillful, supporting causes for release seeing the supporting causes for getting tight. Because that's so energizing, joy arises. So I covered this last week, the sort of uh, linear development of the factors. And you see this in the sutta, the discourse on the mi- on mindfulness of breathing. Toward the end of that discourse, the Buddha explains this linear, natural um, development of the factors, how one feeds the other joy Leads to tranquility. Tranquility supports greater stillness. Greater stillness of mind reveals a way of being equanimous with what's coming and going. And then, of course, that feeds right back. That equanimity really allows that more continuous mindfulness, which supports, right? It's not so much that I investigate the practice, but with that continuity of awareness, in a way, the knowing. The mind can really rest in the knowing, and then the conditional nature reveals itself to the mind. I'm not investigating the conditional nature, like how the mind gets into constricted, heavy places, or how the mind releases that contraction, but it's all acting itself out in the space of awareness. We see the drama, what normally feels like a very personal drama, I'm getting all wrapped up in this worry I have, or I'm really feeling a more expansive love, the safety of this expansive love, or this expansive presence that just us allowing things to come and go. But it's more like we see that sometimes it's twisted steel, and sometimes it's a vast, open, space, where things are moving, but there's no friction anywhere in the system. And the mind, the wisdom, the investigating mind is sort of just observing, oh yeah, when it's like this, things appear to be tight, and when it's like this, everything seems to be wide open and free and no problem anywhere. And to really see like how those things play out, and the problem was always when the mind takes this activity personally. Right? This is the distilling of wisdom. And it's really just with these first three qualities, especially. Now, what we're going to, after tonight, so in the preceding re- weeks, in the future weeks, we'll, the meditation we'll do is more of a, a resolve kind of practice where we'll make the intention, make the resolve, to notice all the factors, and basically learning how to identify, how to recognize these different factors in the mind. And we'll do it in a linear way, although you don't always have to do it that way. So you can even begin that way uh, You know, in your home practice in the days ahead, you don't have to wait until next week's guided meditation, it's really okay to explore that. but. What I'd encourage you more to do for you know your sits is to continue doing what we're doing, have been doing, which is that sustained present moment awareness and really sensing that space that can open up when the mind, the knowing mind becomes less dependent on its own constructions. Now this gets really subtle. You might think your mind is not <clears throat> dependent on its mental constructions of you know, thought or mental image. But one thing I see all the time, I'm assuming it's the same for everybody, just a question of whether it's noticed, is the mind, the conceptualizing mind, is mapping out what it thinks is happening, and it has sort of a visual presence in the mind. And so we have to recognize that conceptualization, even if it's in the form of an image, a mental image, as opposed to the mind talking to itself, which is a little grosser and easier to catch, you know, when you hear your mind chattering or telling itself to do something or telling itself what it is that you're seeing or experiencing. But there can be these sort of uh, maps, uh, mental maps, even, you know, If you train your mind, you can even see them, in a sense. Now, you don't have to get rid of them. You just have to realize that's just something being known. It's just something being seen. It isn't reality. See, when we're unaware, the mind gets dependent on it. And when it's dependent, it can't really investigate. Because it's already distorted by its dependency. It's sort of like the investigating quality is not pure. It is not really suitable to see things as they are. Like in Buddhism, we said to see dhamma or dharma the way it is. The way it is when the mind is not dependent on a map, a conceptual, a constructed map, a conceptual map not dependent on, its ideas. So really work on that uh, sense of what investigation can be where when the mind is able to sustain this present moment awareness without much of the mind, mind moments being dependent on frames, conceptual frames, then the mind sees like the there's a more of a space of awareness and things are unfolding and then we wake up so like the fir- I mentioned earlier the first insight is really beginning to see how the mind creates a hole and falls in it you know how the mind wraps itself into some little tight place and then what can allow that to unwind to fall apart and so the mind feels relatively speaking at least, unbound, not constricted, because clearly we know, I mean I bet everybody would agree to this, like all day long our mind, our heart has been falling into relatively tight periods of time and relatively open, expansive, unhindered, unburdened times, but have we Learned a thing or two today, every day, right? Because if we have been learning every single day a little bit how that all works, like how it is that that mind, this mind, fell into that hole, got tied up in a knot, felt burdened. How was it that the mind was able to become disentangled and not burdened, not tight? We'd be pretty smart if we were learning a little bit every day, having just little glimpses of how that natural process, that natural unfolding toward being in a contracted state, a heavy state, an angry state, a needy state, self-righteous state. I mean, we kind of know, oh yeah, I was reading the news and I took this personally, but see, it's not enough. It's, I mean, it may be helpful to a degree to kind of have an intellectual sense of how we get tied up and how we got free. Yeah, I just stopped obsessing about that. I didn't take it personally anymore. But when we really see it moment by moment by moment directly, it really shifts something deep in how the conceptualizing mind works. Right? Because the mind that constructs meaning, it's, it's going to keep doing that. Of course, it, we, it's, we're totally, like to be a social being, we're totally dependent on being able to construct meaning, because it's the meaning that creates the bridge where we interact with other folks. But something deeply shifts each time we have a little insight about what that meaning-making operation is and what it isn't. So the mind weans, becomes weaned of its dependency on it. It still remains a way to connect with other human beings like we're doing right now you know we're connecting on the level of constructed meaning And it can be those interactions that world of uh, social meaning social connection can be very meaningful on some to some degree right it's just fragile and we actually get better at that world the more, the less dependent the mind is. Because then I can participate in this world of social meaning without it being skewed or burdened by this the needs of the ego. So then my participation or our participation in you know, that shared meaning that we're all Co authoring, co constructing together can be just the activity of generosity or love or compassion because I'm not seeing a lot of personal needs that are convincing that I need to use that conceptualizing process to take care of. That's the emptiness we hear about, you know, in, in terms of Buddhist practice when sometimes those insights are talked about it like. Seeing the empty nature, basically that we don't, there isn't anybody that we have to take care of with our thoughts, with our, you know, conceptualizing, meaning-making activity. So then we can just play with each other in a really nice way. We can use it for other reasons to help make everybody happy, to contribute in different ways, to help, you know. People get clear, make the world more orderly, take care of those who need to be taken care of. This is from Larry Rosenberg's book, Breath by Breath. It's a a really nice book if you like working with the breath as one of your meditation, your main meditation practices. Somewhere in the middle of this book, he says One of the most radical aspects of the re education that this practice involves is not to locate our problems outside ourselves, but always look inside. The Kalesas are brilliant at making us look outside. Right? The Kalesas are the um, the defilements, the obstructions of our mind, the habits of our, obstructive habits of our mind. They keep us constantly occupied so we never look into our own hearts. Now you may think you're looking into our, your own heart, but... As long as we're taking the obstruction personally, then we're not aware of it as just something being known. That's a pretty deep insight to really see what I I kind of pointed us to at the end of the guided meditation, something being known, something being known. It really means for that insight to arise in a deep way, it means the mind for a period of time is not uh, disturbed by the hindrances, by, it's not sort of wavering, the continuity of awareness isn't wavering. Because we, in a sense, the mind really has to rest in that space of knowing. It can really see that actually something being known, like as a concept that describes that clearly is in alignment with the underlying reality, that's a really good description. So some of you know, like there's different maps that arose hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha that mapped out in a very specific systematic way the progress of insight, like how a mind wakes up. And for most people, it's way too detailed and even obsessively systematic. even though it's imperfect in the sense of mapping everybody's mind out, in a general sense, it's very useful. And the first insight in this progress of insight is this recognition, right? That investigation reveals that in its essence, essence, everything we've ever experienced or will experience is something's being known. So there are two things that we can actually separate in a sense by looking at the present moment from different angles, we'll see it's something, right? The object or it's being some, the something is being known, right? So we can highlight the knowing aspect of the present moment, something's being known or the something that is being known. So it's like, you know, what do you emphasize? And because we're mostly object obsessed, then initially in our training, we really emphasize, is being known. It's like, just use a louder voice. So, breathing in is being known. <laughs> breathing out is being known. You know, greed is being known. So it doesn't matter that it's greed, but that it's something being known is what's relevant, and it kind of can crack this very deep habit of being object obsessed, and that really, uh, you know, this is like. The basis of delusion, and when you look at your thinking, when you observe your thinking, and even the, the sort of conceptualizing that's really a bit more expressed as an image or a map, a, a conceptual map, that are, like I mentioned earlier, harder to catch. It's always about the objects of experience. It, the mind, that, that conceptualizing mind will objectify everything, even awareness, even mindfulness, even liberation. Right, it objectifies it as something. So when we, instead, like in terms of the investigation aspect, or realizing that something is being known, the more we emphasize the being known, it the mind begins to intuit. Let's just say the other half of reality. So one half of reality is there's a something, and the other half of reality. It's being known. And like I said, they're always together, right? There's no something unless it's being known. And there's no sense of knowing unless there's a something that's being known. Like what's knowing without an object? We know there's knowing because objects are being known. I don't think we'd know knowing if there weren't objects being known. So I'm not trying to make them different, these two things. But the more we train our mind to recognize the knowing, the awareness piece, the mind senses the uh, sort of, uh, like all three of the three characteristics, which normally, this is what we talk about as insight deepens. We see the ephemeral nature, the anicca is the Pali word, the changing, ephemeral, changing nature. And again, we all kind of know this like we can construct the idea, yeah, that makes sense. The world is changing. I'm not a teenager anymore. You know, I'm not even in my 40s anymore. and It won't be long before I won't even be in my 50s anymore. So we, we kind of get that. But on this level, when we start to see the knowing factor of present moment experience, when we really intuit it's just something being known, the ephemeral nature becomes very apparent to the mind. And the impersonal nature becomes very apparent to the mind. And the unsatisfactory nature of objects, of experience, becomes very clear to the mind. Because they're so ephemeral, because things are so impersonal, because there's really no ground, why would the mind look to objects for security? For meaning for anything but from our normal ordinary point of view we look forward to objects popcorn when you go home or a warm bed or a hug or playing with your cat or dog or you know some entertainment we're very right I mean we need to really get this so it's a deep habit to break and this is why there's this emphasis on investigation So again, just to map out the the course of investigation. So initially, most of what investigation is about is just seeing what's supporting the continuity of awareness and what's getting in the way. Because you can't really do deeper investigation unless there's some continuity of awareness. So this is just the level of the hindrances. Like what's obstructing the continuity of awareness? What's supporting it? And we're just sort of, oh, I keep thinking about that thing. You know, and so we investigate. And this is on a very surface level, like, why do I keep thinking about that? Oh, there's some pain. You know, that interaction, as I remember it, is related to this ache in my heart. Well, honey, can you feel that ache? Yeah, I can feel that ache. Can you accept it completely, 100%? Well, it's not easy, but... Okay, yeah, okay. So do you still need to think about that stuff now that you've accepted the ouch? No, I don't. Because the whole point of me thinking, obsessing about it was I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. But now that I was willing to feel what I'm feeling, I've taken care of that obstacle to the continuity of awareness, right? So sometimes we have to sort of process the emotional business that's swirling, moving, and the body and the mind. We have to sort of, okay. And it's like, you know, hand-to-hand combat, <laughs> if you like the martial imagery. You know, we're, we got to get in there. It's a very active practice. to sort of wondering, like, why can't the mind just be continuously aware? Well, we don't want to feel, like being continuously aware means that the system, whatever this is here, it becomes profoundly sensitive when we have the continuity of awareness. And another way of saying that is we become profoundly, whatever this is, becomes profoundly exposed, undefended. So if there's anything you don't want to feel and see, you're going to have to deal with that. There's a lot of emotional healing for most people has to happen just to get some continuity of awareness. And then, of course, when you do get some continuity of awareness, the more subtle unfinished emotional stuff will percolate, start to percolate up over a period of years, usually, many years, maybe many lifetimes, who knows, but for a long time. But that's okay, because once you're through the crust, you'll have times when there is continuity of awareness, and then times when a lot of emotional stuff is coming up. And it will take you sometimes months of real sincere practice to just even have a sense that Oh, I have to go back to the beginning. I can't be where I am because something's coming up. But I want to be back where I was. But you're not back where you were. Now you have to do that hand-to-hand con- con- combat again. Like, okay, what's the problem here? Oh, there's a yucky feeling. You know, there's something, some dead feeling, some numb feeling, some flat feeling, or some hot feeling, or some ache or some wiry, disturbing, uneasy feeling. There's something moving and I think, my mind thinks, I can just think about it in a way to get rid of it or I can avoid feeling it as a way of getting rid of it. And we do that for days and months and years and then finally realize, I just need to open to this. I have to be willing to feel what I feel. I have to be willing to feel it as if it's never going to go away not feel it in order for it to go away. That's the last mistake we make. Okay, I'm going to feel it. I'm going to put my head in the jaws of the beast. I'm going to surrender completely because then it will go away. Well, it won't. Not not with that attitude because you're still in this dualistic, you haven't completely surrendered. So then you need to say, okay, Perhaps the practice can unfold beautifully even without you going away. Maybe that's what acceptance means, that you don't have to go away. If you go away, great. If you don't go away, that's disturbing this or that, great. I mean, one of the fun things of hanging around people who've been practicing for a while is we tell our war stories about things that hung around for a while. I remember a period in the middle of a long retreat. I don't know what it was about, you know, I I knew enough not to speculate, but it was like I just had the yuckiest feeling in my mouth and a lot of saliva, just, and uh, it was just so unpleasant. And, uh, you know, just weird things. There was another time in my practice I was just like burning heat, and over the course of several weeks, all the skin fell off my ears. I mean, <laughs> not raw, but like layers of skin, not, not, not all the skin. <laughs> just like fiery sort of stuff. I mean, really, some some of it can be kind of weird that happens, these just sort of emotional purification, just stuff and, uh, and the wisdom of the mind sort of learning slowly, one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, ten steps back. I mean, just back and forth, but slowly learns how to make peace with everything that happens to be showing up. So that's the first part is just doing our best to have continuity and be willing to take whatever teacher shows up that's in the way of the continuity of awareness. Okay, in order to have continuity, I have to be at peace with you. I have to be totally open, undefended, accepting as if you're never gonna change. So this is sort of whether we want to practice this or not. And then the the practice is, you know, practicing with it and then turning the attention away when we're exhausted and finding something else to be aware of until we regain our composure and if it's still there, doing our best to be with it again. And then when we do have periods where there's more relaxed, continuous, present moment awareness, then in a more, su- then in a more subtle way we can observe skillful and unskillful because now we're not um, sort of in a defensive stance, like there's something that's in the way of continuity awareness. Now there is continuity of awareness, and then old patterns will arise. But now those old patterns of resistance, of wanting, of you know the hindrances, and all of their forms, they're arising in the space of a mind that's relatively undefiled, relatively pure of greed, anger, and delusion. So then we see and more like vivid, living color, oh, that's unskillful, or that's skillful. There's nothing quite like seeing the arising of a hindrance, like wanting or hating, when your mind's in balance. It's like unforgettable to see, because the mind sees different things about it. It 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 sees in ringing clarity, that's not helpful. It sees in ringing clarity, that's not me. That's not me that hates. There's hatred arising. There's this like it's almost like when there's the mindfulness is strong, it's almost slow motion. You know there's some sense contact, you think something, you see something or something happens, right? And then like as if in slow motion, then sort of the, the disposition to resist or the disposition to want or the disposition to be distracted, but it's it just sort of comes in and the mind, wisdom, investigation in the mind, it sees it as a natural impersonal arising and it sees it as a changing process. Not me, not mine. And it really discovers all I have to do, all the mind or wisdom has to do is see it for what it is. It doesn't actually have to intervene. That's the intervention. At this level, when there's enough continuity, it's just to see what's coming and going. Right? So then at this level of the investigation, when there's some continuity, those periods of time when there's continuity, it's like you're noticing what's skillful and unskillful, and you're also noticing this other insight that I talked about. It's just something being known. It's just something being known. It's just something being known. And you're really letting that way of framing experience sink in deep. It's always just something being known. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. It seems like, what could be more boring than that? But when the mind is settled, it's, it's shocking. It's really shocking it's just this being known. Like even in the course of today, I mean, there have been at least a couple dozen times when, and not often (laughs) during, I mean, most of those were not in my formal sit this morning or this evening, but just through the day where the mind was sort of relatively imbalanced, but, you know, getting caught in something, and then wisdom naturally arose and realized, well, that's just something being known. Not, not that those words needed to be repeated in the mind. But to see something that seems to be me or about me or something that's happening in my mind, and then in the next moment to realize, no, actually it's just something being known. It's like a little paradigm shift or an insight. right? Insight is only from, it only makes sense from delusion to non-delusion, right? Insight isn't, awakened minds don't have insight. Minds that are clear don't have insight. It's only when the mind has fallen under, or is about to, and then it realizes, oh, it's just that. It's just that. So, don't uh, dismiss something as being known as uh, not what you want. I mean, this is a liberating insight. This is what the heart really wants is to understand it's just something being known. From an ego point of view, it feels a little flat or nihilistic. What does that give me? This is being known. I don't get it. What do I get from that study? But what the heart realizes is that that When that understanding, in moments when that understanding matures, there's no problem. And, it, and the mind realizes how this is the way to be in the world. This is the way to engage the world from this point of view. Because that mind, that heart, is not afraid of anything and is not in need of anything and is happy, not afraid of participating in the messiness of the world. This is a great quote from uh, a wonderful teacher. If you haven't read ever read any of Tony Packer's book, she started off training in the Zen tradition and then felt a little confined by any sort of categories. Um, I think... She allowed people to call her an awareness teacher, but she didn't even like that that much. Anyway, this is from her book, The Light of Discovery. She asks herself in this passage, she asks herself this question, what is this work? The essence is to come upon a profound kind of listening and openness that reveals the intense power and momentum of our human conditioning. How we are caught up and attached to ideas about ourselves and each other. How violently we defend these ideas, not just individually, but collectively. And how this defense keeps us isolated from each other and from ourselves. The other aspect of this listening is to come upon an inner, outer silence, stillness, spaciousness, in which there is no sense of separation or limitation outside or inside. And another great uh, teacher, recent teacher, Joko Beck. She was the abbess of the San Diego Zen Center before she died a few years back. This is from her book Everyday Zen. Our interest in reality is extremely low. She's talking about non-conceptual reality. Our interest in reality is extremely low. No, we want to think, we want to worry through all of our preoccupations. We want to figure life out. And so before we know it, we've forgotten all about this moment and we've drifted off into thinking about something. Our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our child, our boss, our current fear, off we go. There's nothing sinful about such fantasizing except that when we're lost in that, we've lost something else. We're lost in thought. When we're lost in thought, we're dreaming. What we, ha- I'm sorry. When we're lost in thought, when we're dreaming, what have we lost? We've lost reality. Our life has escaped us. So the real essence of investigation is to move toward a non-conceptual connecting with What's here, What's now? To break that spell I don't know, maybe some of you read um, Santi Carlos' article that I sent out a couple of weeks ago, and he quotes, "Charles Tart, that consent, what, did it, what was consensus? What was the line? I wrote it down here. Consensus trance, right, as a, you know, a phrase pointing to these, you know, meanings that we co-create together, and then they become like a trance. We don't even, we're completely unaware of the mind's dependence, fixation, holding to these consensus trance about who we are, about what this is. And so that's why there's so much work involved initially in practice of you know, bringing the attention to the body, bringing the attention to the breath. And there's a real, like, we're developing this muscle that has a lot of integrity, and it needs a lot of power too. So the integrity is sort of, we understand what we're aiming at, where we're aiming the attention. Like, because if we aim at the breath, but we're sloppy, the attention is going to go to the idea we have about the breath or the mental image projection we have about the breath. So we really need to know what we're aiming at. And there's going to be a lot of friction because there's so much force of habit that wants to deflect the attention to where it has almost always gone, to our thoughts about whatever it is that's happening in the moment. That's the easiest thing for the mind, the attention rather, to go to is our thoughts about things. And so, if you haven't caught this yet, it's just because you're not paying attention, probably. But most of our time practicing and thinking about practice, right, it's our attention isn't going to what we call Dharma or Dhamma the way it is the non-conceptual reality, it's going to our thoughts about practice, the thoughts about Buddhism, our thoughts about what we'll get if we practice sincerely. We're thinking about practicing. And the more we realize that, like (laughs) these are these very disconcerting but useful moments, especially in the middle of longer retreats, where it just dawns on the mind How much time on retreat, let alone like in daily life, is being spent not here and now. It's like that's a sign you're beginning to wake up when you realize how much time, how much mental energy is in the, you know, the papancha, the proliferation, thoughts leading to more thoughts, leading to more thoughts, leading to more thoughts. So the, there's this you know, dynamic duo of continuity of awareness, and in a way, investigation, you know, the, the phrase is investigation of the way it is. This is the second factor of awakening. And obviously, there's no investigation of the way it is without the continuity of mindfulness, which is the first factor, and then the piece that investigation brings in is that aiming, right? The sharpness. That it's so the investigation obviously is a very much a wisdom factor in our mind. And we get the sharpness to some degree from study. Like we study what the Buddha said or what other wise people have said, and they're saying, they're doing their best to tell us how to aim The attention what's worthy of attention what isn't that worthy of attention because there's like all these you know flashing neon lights in our mind and body look at me look at me but we wanna you know it's both what we pay attention to and how we pay attention like what's the frame what's the way we're gonna understand what the mind is doing so that's why it's useful to hear talks about practice. I mean, there's sort of two approaches, just to sort of, you know, one approach is just to send somebody out into the woods and to be alone. And uh, and you kind of figure it out, like if you don't have any duties and responsibilities, and, and all the teacher is doing is so just, you know, just stay away from people, stay away from duties and responsibilities, come out of the woods once a day, get a meal, go back into the woods, you know, and, and when you're at the point of knocking your head against the tree or the rock, really frustrated, then come ask me questions. Like, why is it so hard? And then the teacher will give them just a little bit of instruction. Now, here in the West, and, and so that's one end of the spectrum, here in the West we tend to be more at this other end, and really... I, don't, I think you could argue that any place along the spectrum might be skillful for you. So some of you may need to be at this end, where study, you, you only want just enough information so you can get frustrated, and, and then come out and ask a very sincere question, You know, something like, why does it hurt so much to be me? Right? And then some wise person will give you a little bit more to go on, and you work with that until you start Why does it still hurt so much to be me? And then the person, the teacher, will give you a little bit more. But over here, we do a lot of work kind of on an intellectual level, sort of understanding the whole scope of the practice and really getting, basically building a whole new vocabulary that then, with enough study, intellectual study, and some practice, starts to come online. So we start to hold our experience of being a human being with these new concepts that we've been talking about, thinking about, studying, and so it's like the word craving has actual meaning, direct immediate meaning for us, and the grasping and non-grasping and, you know, awareness. Like somebody who hasn't been immersed in this for a while, you know, their understanding of what awareness is is so much less sophisticated, refined, than most of you who have been curious about what the hell is awareness or mindful awareness, right? We just have a much more refined appreciation for these concepts that we've been studying, right? And the key here is there's got to be some grounding of the study with a direct practice of reality, of your direct immediate um, experience as a human being, the mind, This being known, the mind is knowing. So you're you're letting that practice, what we call practice, uh, inform what you're studying, the conceptual maps you're making. And this is important, the conceptual maps you're studying are really supporting how your mind is connecting to non-conceptual reality. It's informing, it's like creating bridges into that world. It's just this being known. That's a conceptual map, right? The idea that there's awareness knowing an object. That's a conceptual map. But it's a very useful conceptual map that can bring us right to the edge where the mind is identified with the conceptual map. Hey, it's always something being known, something being known, to the direct experiencing of that, seeing that as a reality, as an immediate reality, not the concept. So, all of us, you know, because we're going to be different and what's good medicine for our practice will be somewhere along the spectrum of a lot of study and with some practice, a lot of practice with just a little bit of input from a teacher, from a book. You know, you have to sort of that's why, you know, I don't know if you noticed in the email today, there were five articles. I doubt anybody's going to read all five, but maybe some of you will. And that's great if, it, if it's useful. I think I sent it out. Did anybody get it? Yeah, it was right before class. Um, but, but it's okay if you come out of these classes and you feel like, oh, that was way too much. But that's okay. Just take one thing and connect it with your practice let it illuminate let it be worked in needed into your practice so that somehow it's challenging the habit of the mind that's why you need that's why there always needs to be some input some of the traditions like uh, some of the tibetan traditions you know they they've made a huge deal of the out of the pointing out instructions it's like you need uh, an enlightened teacher preferably, like a Buddha, to give you pointing out instructions, right? And it's sort of like infecting your mind with a view that will af- uh, affect how your mind then begins to relate to experience, begins to know experience. So there's these are these interventions or these inputs that we need. Because if there's no input, chances are even if you're fortunate enough To be able to live in a secluded place with no duties and responsibilities, not overwhelmed by ill health or mosquitoes or other creepy crawlers, right? And you're in a relatively tranquil setting where the natural curiosity of the mind about the mind can sort of express itself, you're still likely just to spin in circles for a long, long, long time, right? Unless you know somehow. Your mind is exceptionally creative or there was already a seed planted. But it can be just a very small seed that comes around along. You bump into a book or into something that catches your interest. And it takes your mind down a path it wouldn't otherwise go down. Like something, like even the simple instruction. It's just something being known. That could be enough for some of you in the room. And you might just work with that. That may be the only thread you need That's kind of interesting, something's being known. But what does that mean in my own experience now, something being known? Well, even this thinking about it, that thinking is just a mental activity and it's being known. Well, That's kind of interesting. I'm touching my chin, that's just something being known. But what about me? Well, That's just a thought being known, right? You see, that something being known, it takes care of all problems. But I don't want to die. Well, that's just a thought. But it really hurts. Yeah, that's just a feeling being known. You see how it sort of, it, it's like, no, but I want there to be a problem here. Well, that's just a little drama being known. <laughs> <laughs> so it keeps pulling the rug out over and over again. So some of these teachings are very pithy, like you don't need much more. Unless you have a mind that does need a lot more, right? And then you, you kind of take it in in that way. So, you'll notice, like in the room during the talk sometimes, that some people are just doing their practice. They're just doing their practice. They're not trying to listen to what the teacher is saying, and that's really okay. But in that, you know, their ears are still hearing, and their thinking mind is still operating, conceptualizing, integrating what un- unavoidably is being heard into their own existing knowledge or understanding, and something might just. Out of, you know, sitting in that way in a, during a Dharma talk, something might just sort of get established in the mind in some way, make an impression in the mind stream in some way, and then it will affect that person's practice. And they won't even know it, they won't even try, like, oh, I'm going to use this. It will just change the next time they're formally practice or informally practicing their mind will have been infected by that one word or that one phrase that sort of rang true, even though 99% of what was said maybe got on a shelf somewhere or maybe not. Maybe just sort of came in and went right back out, didn't really land anywhere. And that's okay, especially if you're the person at this end of the spectrum. Because otherwise, you can get sort of tie yourself a knot thinking, i got to do something with all, this, all these words. No, you don't. <laughs> Unless you, it sort of builds faith and uh, builds bridges into this space we call Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is. So uh, we'll do just a little bit of um, investigation next week, but mostly we'll be doing energy, and we'll have small groups. So it would be interesting to share in your small groups next week. This. Um, some of these things that I've mentioned about investigation. What's in the way of continuity, what's supporting continuity, or the exploration of this is being known, or the impersonal nature of hindrances, of what's disturbances, mental activity, pain, and uh, even seeing the impersonal, ephemeral, unsatisfactory nature of objects of experience. So uh, investigating uh, how the mind relates to objects, seeing them as changing, impersonal, and fundamentally unsatisfactory, all objects. Yeah, I could go home, I could stop and get chocolate on the way home, but i can see that experience i can you know because i have an imagination i can imagine what that would taste like i can imagine the hassle i can imagine everything about it and i can see that the satisfaction is not much of anything it's real in a sense but it doesn't change anything now i normally don't do that around popcorn or chocolate you know but i know that i can do that Like, I can see, yeah, I could do that. It's not bad, necessarily. The bad part is more the making the mind dependent. But I can also let it go. There's a lot of freedom in being able to see the ephemeral, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature, you know, as that comes online with more practice. So these are some of the things you could share in your small group. Um next week so let's just take a few seconds let go of the words appreciate being here together about the underlying nature of what's arising here arising and passing even if it's frustration or whatever it might be just something being known and appreciating that this capacity we have to be curious about the mind, about experience. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.